Well, we're back in our series today on the letter to the Ephesians. If you have a Bible and would turn with me, uh, we're going to be reading today uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 25. We took a brief break last week for Easter in our Ephesians series, but we're right back at it. Uh, you may remember a couple of weeks ago when we were last in Ephesians, uh, we talked about how Paul is transitioning now between the more doctrinal sections of the letter into a practical section of the letter. And those two are not really fully separated for Paul, though. Uh, there is application in his doctrine, and there is doctrine in his application. Uh, you can never separate the two out in the Bible, ever. Uh, but here this morning, you're going to see especially the turn towards the practical. Uh, he gives us just some real simple do's and don'ts and some reasons why we ought to pursue it. Uh, let me read, uh, read it to you, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. This is God's Word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, Due to the hardness of their heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Amen. Back in World War II, uh, C.S. Lewis, whom you hear me quote a lot, uh, some may say maybe too much, but I have an addiction to C.S. Lewis books. I'm here to confess. Uh, C.S. Lewis during World War II gave a series of uh, radio talks for all of Great Britain, and they are now known as Mere Christianity. The book Mere Christianity is just a series of talks he gave on BBC Radio. Uh, because they asked him, hey, during wartime, everybody's very discouraged, um, lots of death. Uh, will you give the nation kind of your version of what Christianity means? And so he did it. You know, week after week, he'd go on and give a new address, and they were all collected together. 
One of my favorite uh, sections of that book, which is now a book, uh, is at the very end when he comes to address what the new life in Christ is supposed to be like. Uh, Listen to what he says. He says, God became man. That's the story of Jesus. God became a man in order to turn creatures into his sons. He didn't do that simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once the the horse has got its wings, it will soar over fences which it never could have jumped over and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. Think about that this morning. If you're here in church or if you're watching church online or listening to a sermon, chances are you believe at least this much. I need some kind of new life at some point in my life, right? I need some kind of change. And probably you're here because you've got some inkling, at least, that Jesus Christ might have something to do with that. However, I think a lot of times we sell ourselves short and Jesus short when we think about this concept of new life. Jesus came to bring us a very specific kind of new life, which is what this passage is about. It's not just that Jesus came to train us to be better horses of the old kind, uh, because what we are called to jump over is way higher than a normal horse could ever scale. Uh, If you've ever noticed, uh, the commandments that God gives us in his word are far greater than we can ever accomplish on our own. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever tried to obey God? And failed right away. It's a little bit like teaching a horse to jump the moon. When it comes to asking people like us to do the simple things that God calls us to do in obedience. And yet when Jesus came, he didn't just come to train us to jump higher and higher. He came to give us wings. He came to give us a whole new life. The Bible calls it being born again. That we start over from the very beginning. And that new life begins to work itself out into us in every area And so today, if you look at your bulletin, I want to talk you through three things about this new life, specific life that Jesus comes to bring from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. First of all, we're going to see the coming of the new life. That's going to be in verses 7 to 19, the coming of the new life. Then we're going to see the curriculum of the new life. That's verses 20 through 24. And then lastly, the calling of the new life. Verses 25 to 32. Uh, We're not able to cover all the details of the passage today because there's too much in here. But hopefully I'll give you some food for thought so that you can go and continue to think about all the things that it tells us to do. First of all, the coming of the new life. Uh, Notice there in verses 17 to 19, Paul's wanting to remind the Ephesian Christians where they came from and how Jesus got them to where they currently are. Because there's a very big difference between who they were and who they now are since they've believed in Jesus. Uh, One of my favorite phrases in the Bible occurs in verses 17 to 19. Did you notice the two words, no longer? I love those words in the Bible. Everybody say, no longer. No longer. longer. Those are beautiful words. They are the words of change. And not just any change, they're the words of radical change. Don't you agree? 
I was such and such, but no longer am I such and such. Now I am this, not that. I used to be that, but no longer. Something has happened in my life. Uh, God has invaded. That's what this is about. God has invaded my life and taken it over. So that the things that used to define me no longer define me. And that's, a, that's great news for the Ephesians and it's great news for us. Because look at how he describes what they used to be. It ain't pretty. He says, I, I testify to you not to walk as the Gentiles do. Read in between the lines. Y'all used to be Gentiles like this, but no longer are you like this. In the futility of your mind. The complete just cluelessness of your mind is what that means. You used to be clueless about all the things that really matter in life. You might not have been clueless about some lesser things, but you were clueless about the things that really count. The things of God, the things of eternity. Uh, they are darkened, he says, in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they've become callous, and they've given themselves up to practice every kind of sensuality and impurity. That's a dark picture. Uh, John Stott, uh, the great Bible teacher, summarizes the picture this way. He says there's a progression here of how sin works itself out in the human heart. Notice how it starts in the heart, but then it eventually leads to the behavior. If you'll trace out the grammar of what Paul's saying, it starts with stubbornness. John Stott says, sin always begins there. It's a stubbornness against God. When God speaks, I stiffen my neck, my back, and I don't want to hear what he has to say. That's why God used to call Israel my stiff-necked people. That's what he was referring to. When I speak and tell you to do something, you think of all the ten ways why you shouldn't do it, why you should do this other thing. You don't pay attention to me. And so as a result of that stubbornness, there's a darkness of heart. Their darkness begins to fill the person. They can't truly understand the truth because they're not willing to accept it or willing to hear it. Which then leads to God's judgment. Described here as alienation from God. You become not, not just uh, ignorant of God, you become estranged from God. Where you don't even want God in your life. And then finally, the very last step there is a recklessness of life. Stott says, where you're giving yourself up completely to practice sensuality. Now, think about what sensuality is. You know, the word sensuality has the word sense in it. And so sensuality is living only by your five physical senses and not by the key inner sense of the Holy Spirit directing you in God's ways. And so what started as a seemingly, seemingly harmless stubbornness of heart, ends up being a total abandon and recklessness of the life. What Paul's describing here is what we call total depravity. Total depravity. That human beings, apart from the grace of God, are sinners from the inside out in every single part of us. And there's nothing in our own self that we can do to fix it. The reason why we say total depravity is the same reason why we use the word total when you wreck a car. When you total a car, what does that mean? 
Can't fix it, can't drive it. Uh, it. At the very least, it means the cost of fixing it is greater than the cost that it's worth. That's what it, at the very least, that's what it means. It may even mean you just physically can't fix it because it's completely burnt up. Well, in the Bible, I don't know if you think that about yourself by nature or if you've ever thought that about yourself, but the Bible names you totaled apart from Jesus. So it wasn't that Jesus came into the world and said, hey, here's some nice people. Let's come make them nicer. These people have potential. Let me come into the world and give them a little makeover, a little curb appeal. That's not what God did. When he sent his son to become a man, he came to make a new kind of man, a new kind of woman, because the former kind of man and woman was totaled. And when God invades our lives with new life, all the opposite things that are listed there in verses 17 through 19, all the opposite things begin to come to life. Instead of stubbornness, there becomes a willingness. Don't you want that? When the passage says no longer, that's what it's talking about. You were stubborn, but now by grace you are willing. Willing to hear God. You used to be full of darkness, but no longer now you're full of light. You used to be alienated from God, but now you're in his blessing, you're in his favor. You're reconciled to your father. You used to be reckless in the way you live, but now you live by wisdom. Because you're, you're listening to God and your heart is bent towards him. Listen, y'all. This is contrary to all popular opinion. Let me tell you something. Contrary to all popular opinion. Most people think a Christian is someone who's nice, comes from a good family, is conservative and or liberal, depending on your perspective, is either quiet and non-confrontational or bold and confrontational, depending on your perspective, right? All those things are merely human things that actually you can fake all day long. And actually, all those things can be at place in your life, and yet you still be the same old kind of person you were when you were born. It don't change one thing. The only thing that makes a person a genuine Christian, as Paul describes it here, is the new birth that can only come from God above. Sometimes people do religion or come to church, and for them it's just training a horse to jump higher. And a lot of times, folks who do that end up not really liking church much because, well, that's exhausting. Especially when you've come to realize, wow, so you're training me to jump the moon? i got a lot more training to do, and it's all on me. Wow. But when you realize Jesus came to invade your life, it doesn't mean there's no activity on your part. It just means the activity only comes from the new heart that he's giving you by grace, <laughs> which is a whole different basis for living, I think you'll agree, a whole different basis to say my work is based on his prior work versus I come to work so that maybe he'll work in response to my work. Being a Christian is so much more than being merely nice, from a good family, conservative and or liberal, bold and or quiet, confrontational and or non-confrontational, whichever your perspective happens to be. It's so much more than that. Ask Nicodemus who was all those things that he was supposed to be, 
But when he came to Jesus, Jesus said, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. Well, for that matter, ask Paul, who's writing this. I mean, Paul was Rabbi Paul, or Rabbi Saul, you know, more, more like it. Paul was a religious zealot, if there ever was one. And yet Jesus came and basically said the same thing as he said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, unless I give, or Paul, unless I give you a new heart. No longer. You once were, but now no longer, because God sent his son and then his spirit to invade your life and give you a radical change. When we get to heaven, and when we stand before the Lord, which we all will one day do, the only reason God will let anyone into his heaven is because they have a new nature which has been given to them as a gift from God. It will not be, oh, I see that you had a nice family. Come in. Or oh, I see you were a member of the Republican Party. Come on in. Or the Democrat Party. He will not do that, I promise you. He will say, do you have a new heart? given to me by grace. That's the first thing, the coming of the new life. But secondly, Paul wants us to see the curriculum of the new life. Uh, even though the new life is not something we create, it's something given to us, it is something that is developed in our life through a combination of God's work coming to us first and then our gracious and grateful response back to his work. And that's what Paul begins to describe there in verses 20 to 24. Uh, notice all the learning language, all the school language that Paul uses in 20 to 24. Uh, this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught as him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Do you see all that learning language? Being a Christian is to be a learner, enrolled in a school. But it's a special kind of school. It's unlike any other school. It's the school of Jesus. And in the school of Jesus, you're not only learning about Jesus, you're actually learning from Jesus. And you're actually learning, well, it says there, not learning about Jesus, you're learning Jesus. Do you notice that? He didn't say in verse 20, this is not the way you learned about Jesus. The about's not there. You learned Jesus when you became a Christian, and you learn him every day as a Christian. In other words, it's a personal learning. Uh, back in the uh, Jewish <clears throat> culture of Jesus' day and Paul's day, uh, when you went to school, it was usually you were going to be taught by a rabbi. And you became associated with that rabbi. And you not only learned the stuff he knew, you learned him. You walked with him. You ate with him. You, you know, stayed with him and overnight. You traveled with him. You were with him all the time. You got to see him in all different kinds of settings. He, he got to follow you and see you in all different kinds of settings. It was a very personal kind of teaching. Think about Jesus and his disciples. That's what he did, right? With those 12 men and the other people that followed him. They went around with Jesus and saw with their own eyes. And this is actually saying that when you become a Christian, you get that same experience, maybe not physically, but you get the same experience spiritually 
Because the Holy Spirit has come to live in you, you actually get to be with Jesus at every moment of your life, learning from him. Isn't that cool? When you become a member of the church, you're enrolling in the school of Christ to learn from Jesus directly. Uh, there are two you know, main stages to the school. If you want to say it, there's an elementary school and a high school. If you want to put it that way, uh, in verse 21 describes it. The elementary school is when you hear about him. That's when you first enter into Jesus. You hear about him. I mean, honestly, the only way to become a Christian is to hear about Jesus. And when you hear about Jesus, by his grace, you believe. And when you believe, you become one with Jesus. You become enrolled in his school, baptized in all the rest. You hear about him. And hearing about him brings faith out of our hearts, what Paul describes in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But then there's the high school. You hear about him, but then you are taught in him. In other words, once you hear about him and become united to him, you continually get taught in him. You notice that word, in him. Meaning your life is now located in a new place. You are in Christ. No longer in your old self, now in your new self. Elementary school, high school. Teaching you a few very important lessons there in verse 20, uh, 22 and 23 and 24. Put off your old self. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. Those are the main lessons we're learning from Jesus. Uh, that put off and put on. Uh, those two verbs are uh, verbs of decisive action. Okay, they're, they're not verbs of process. They're verbs of once for all, boom, done. Saying that when you come to Jesus, you have, by his grace, put off the old self. It no longer defines you. You say, well, I, well I'm still a sinner. Yes, you are, and the Bible does talk about that too. But here it's talking about how when you become a Christian, you make a clean break in your heart. God makes a clean break in his mind and heart. That you are no longer associated with what you were. It's done. You can't go back to that. Um, there is a no U-turn sign at every, every stop along the way in the Christian life. God won't let you turn back. You can't turn back. You've got to keep going forward because you have put off the old self. And you've also decisively put on the new self. This new self that's being created, it says, verse 24, after the image or likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Created by God. Again, Jesus comes not to just train us to be better people of the same kind. He comes to make us a new kind of person. Created according to the pattern of of God's righteousness and holiness. But then in the middle there, if you look at, at verse um, 23, there's an ongoing process verb. You put off, you put on, but you're being renewed continually, every day, in the spirit of your minds. When you enroll in the school of Christ, you make a clean break with the past, you put on what Christ has said about you in the gospel, but then every day you need your mind renewed by the word of God. In other words, being a Christian, you can't start it 
you can't make yourself a Christian by any of the other things we listed a moment ago. God has to do it. But once you're a Christian, it takes work, activity. You're a student in school. Like it or not, kids, <laughs> you're a lifelong learner enrolled in the school of Christ forever. And that means, well, I know this, I used to be a teacher, if you didn't know that. I used to be a school teacher. And uh, kids get out of school what they bring to it, don't they? I mean, there's only so much you can do as a, as a teacher. Actually, only so much you can do as a parent, really, at the end of the day. Kids get out what they bring to it. And same thing in the church, same thing in Christianity. We bring to it, if we bring to it a desire to continually be renewed in our minds, if every day we remember, I've put off that old self and I've put on the new self, if that becomes our controlling story in our minds and in our hearts, then we will see, according to this, we'll see real growth. If we don't do that, we might not see very good growth. We might see backtracking, and even though you're not supposed to make U-turns, sometimes we do make U-turns. In spite of the signs. Right? That's why Paul's writing this after all. I mean, that's where he started in verse 17. You must no longer walk as you once did. And he's, I mean, obviously, some of them were walking as they once did. And he's saying, I don't want you to do that anymore. Put on this new way of thinking by getting into the school of Christ and learning the curriculum that he's laid out for you. My son, uh, my oldest son is signing up, has just signed up to go to high school next year, which is, yeah, incredible. I feel very old. But one of the, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, all I can do is speak for me, y'all. I feel old. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, maybe others feel older. I can't speak for that, but I feel really, really old. But I, I, was, I was up at the high school, you know, going through all those meetings of this is the classes you got to sign up for. And always when you go to high school, there's a lot of talk about required classes versus electives, right? And you got to make sure you get all the required classes in. And if you don't do your schedule right, it could have problems. And I remember when I was in high school at the very end, you know, as a senior, I was called into the guidance counselor's office and they sat me down and said, okay. Here are all the required classes. Here's the ones you haven't done yet. you got to do it this year. If you don't do it, you won't graduate, right? It's, Paul is kind of being a guidance counselor here, right? He's, he's saying, you're saved by grace, but if you don't take these classes, when you get to heaven, you're probably going to be shocked. This is sobering, but you're probably going to be shocked because if you're not taking the classes in the school of Christ, you may think you're a new person. But the chances are you're going to be found not to be. That's sobering. But true. That's why he, I mean, do you see the exclamation point at the end of verse 20? Read, Paul is animated. <laughs> Paul is excited. Paul is forceful here. You're living in a way you shouldn't live. That is not the way you learned Christ. Get back into school. Uh, look, at all the, uh, look at all the required classes you're not taking yet. Get enrolled in them. 
Get into the put-off class. Get into the put-on class. And make sure whatever you do, get into the renewal of your mind class because y'all ain't thinking right. And Jesus came to change you from the inside out, the way you think as well as the way you behave. And so let's look now at the third thing, the calling of the new life, because we see both things. The way we think and the way we behave in every single area of our lives are very vitally important. Now, in verses 25 to 32, he gives us five very practical examples of how the new life shows itself. Five examples. In verse 25, he talks about lying and telling the truth. That's practical, right? Verse 26, being angry and handling your anger in a sinful way or an unsinful way. In verse 28, how you work and use your possessions. 29, how you use your words towards other people. Verse 31, the attitudes that you have towards other people and how those attitudes show up. Those are the five key examples. Notice how every single area of life is covered there. I can't think of too many other areas of life besides the ones covered here. Your speech, your emotions, your conflicts, the way you use your time, the way you work, the way you use your possessions, your attitudes, and even your religious faith. Is there anything else? <clears throat> Maybe you could name you know, marriage and family. Well, that comes up in chapter 5. Don't worry, we'll get there. <laughs> he kind of holds that one for later because he's got a lot to say about that one. But for now, he's covering basically everything else. And he's saying that every part of your life now is a part of your calling as a new creature in Christ. If you're a new creation, there is no part of your life that Jesus doesn't put his finger on and say, mine. And I've got an idea for it. I've got a plan for it. Also notice how relational the list is. Isn't that incredible? There is not a single thing on the list that doesn't have to do in some way with how we relate to each other. Shows you how much God cares about that. And how much God hates when we say we love him but we can't love each other. The Bible makes that very plain. You know, how can you say that you love a God you can't see if you can't even love people you see? I mean, let's get down to the basics here. I was John saying that. Jesus said to his disciples, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. That's how they'll know that you're with me. That's how, that's how they'll know you're enrolled in my school. It's relational. But I want you to also notice it's based on the attitude of the heart. It's spiritual. Uh, Paul's not just concerned with what we do and don't do, but why we do it. Uh, in fact, if you'll notice, look back down at all those verses each one of the five follows the same exact pattern. First, he tells us what they're not to do. Then he tells them in the same category what they are to do. And then he gives them the reason why they're to do it. And then not do it. You know, oftentimes we think, okay, I know what Christianity means. It means not doing certain things. Well, notice, it also means doing certain things. Other times, some people think it means doing good things, you know, helping people across the street, giving money to uh, you know, people who need things. It's all about the doing, but the not doing, well, that's just too judgy. Notice it's doing and not doing. 
And then to everybody, it's reminding us God cares not just that we do the right things and not do the wrong things, but that we do them all for the right reasons. Because we love God and because we know he first loved us and showed us tremendous mercy and grace in Christ. Let me ask you a few questions. You might want to write these down as we close. Just write these down. These are great questions to ask yourself related to whether the new life is showing up in your life. First of all, am I relating to others as a new person in Christ? Am I relating to others as a new person in Christ? Does my new identity in Jesus really affect the way I think about my neighbor, my fellow believer, my family member, my coworker, my friend, my enemy? Is it changing my relationships? Remember what Jesus said, if it's not, well you got to get back to, you got to get back to basics again because the one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who is loved and knows that they're loved much loves much. All of us need to examine that. Second question. Am I bringing every area of my life under Jesus' lordship? Am I bringing every area of my life under Jesus' lordship or leadership? Is there something on this list that I don't want to hand over to Jesus? Maybe it's my emotions. I really don't want to change my emotions. I really don't want God to change them. Or maybe it's your possessions. My stuff is mine. I don't want God telling me to do, you know, to use it in a sacrificial way like it says here. I mean, notice it says in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. So what? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What a radical thing. Have you ever in your life thought that? I mean, I don't know. Like, why do you go to work so that I would have stuff to give away? Have you ever thought that? And yet the school of Christ is trying to teach you that. To have that heart and attitude about your possessions and, and mine. Maybe it's the use of your time or the way you handle conflict. Is there some area you're trying to hold back from Jesus? Today is a great day to begin to give that back over to him. Next question. Am I seeing true transformation in my life or am I settling for mere self-improvement? Am I seeing true transformation or am I merely settling for self-improvement? In other words, am I paying attention to why I'm doing things? Am I doing them with the right heart? Am I, am I worshiping with the right heart? Am I parenting with the right heart am I going to work with the right heart I mean God help me I mean by the way I think all of us will have some stuff to work on as we ask these questions right I don't think anybody's gonna be like check 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 right <laughs> all of us are going to have a list of things that we st because we're still enrolled in the school and there's still much work to be done last question is the change in my life rooted in a living relationship with God by grace be careful. When you start get to lists of do's and don'ts of the Bible, it's easy to jump into what we call legalism. It's easy to jump into, okay, I've got to do this and do that so that God will bless me, so that he won't curse me. 
rather than thinking these things are I'm being called to do because God has already given me his grace through Jesus. Because he's already loved me. And let me, let me just kind of, let me talk you through that really quick, what that looks like. I mean, every single item on this list that we're being called to do, Jesus first did for us. And that's how we're saved today. If you're a Christian, the reason why you're a Christian is Jesus did these things for you. Verse 25, he didn't lie to you. He told you the truth. He brought you the whole truth of God. And he did so because he wanted to make you members of his own body. Jesus died to make us members of his own body. Verse 26, there were times he got angry with us, but in this anger he never sinned against us. He never let the sun go down on his anger. He was more willing to let the sun go down on his life than he was for the sun to go down on his anger against you. He gave no opportunity to the devil in his anger. In fact, he came into the world to destroy the works of the devil, which he has done for you. Verse 28, Jesus didn't come to steal but to give. Jesus labored for you. He suffered throughout his life. He did honest work with his own hands for you. Why? Not so that he could enrich himself. He let go of all of his riches, the Bible said. He came that he might give his riches and share them with us. He freely gives, and we therefore freely receive. Verse 29, Jesus never spoke a corrupting word. Every time he spoke, he spoke to build up. He spoke every time as fitted the occasion. He was very uh, appropriate with everything he ever said. Why? So that grace might come to us. In fact, when we hear about Christ, grace comes into our lives. Jesus didn't grieve the Holy Spirit, but he cherished the Spirit. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And then finally, verse 32 Needs no other explanation because Paul comes out and says it. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Why do we live a new life? Because we have been given a new life. How have we been given a new life? Because Christ laid down his life. First for us. Amen?